This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to this first episode in the second series of A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences in music, literature, art of course and much more and look at their cultural experiences more widely. And I'm delighted to say that the first episode of the series is A Brush With, Ragnar Kjartansson. Ragnar was born in Reykjavik in Iceland in 1976 and his parents were both actors, which he talks about a bit later. And in fact, they both feature in one of his works, which is called Take Me Here by the Dishwasher, Memorial for a Marriage. It's a work in which a sequence from a film that they both appeared in is used as the sort of video element of the work. And it features a sex scene from this feature film uh, in which his mother is imagining having sex with a workman who's played by his dad and family led legend has it that Ragnar was conceived during the making of that film. Around the video screens in that work are young men, several of them who are sitting on mattresses or chairs or lying on the floor with acoustic guitars singing this rather lilting poetic song with bottles of beer at their side. And the reason I mention that piece in particular is because it encapsulates many of the core themes of Ragnar's work. So the autobiographical element that I have talked about and then there's this aspect of romanticism in the young men who are poetically in a sort of reverie as they sing this song but there's also a playfulness in the way that Ragnar addresses that romanticism he's really interested in cliche and indeed his work is laced with irony but there's a joyful rather than world weary approach to it that work also involves performance as I've said and indeed Ragnar engages very deeply with the traditions of performance art for instance in the duration of his works very many of his works are really long the most obvious example being his work called A Lot of Sorrow in which the American rock band The National play their song Sorrow for six hours straight end-to-end looping But if he does engage with the kind of form of performance art and its traditions, he also subverts those traditions. So when one thinks of the performance art of the 60s and 70s, it's often very tough, very spare, very direct, whereas Ragnar's work is often very theatrical, very flamboyant. So he subverts the tradition of performance as well as paying homage to it. And also, Take Me Here by the Dishwasher is a mixed media work, and Ragnar engages with all sorts of media and disciplines. So that work was film and performance, but he's done drawing, he's done photography, he's done painting, and indeed, he's made work in choreography. One of the key strands of all of Ragnar's work is collaboration. The music for Take Me Here by the Dishwasher was composed by Kjartan Svensson from the Icelandic band Sigur Ross, who is a regular collaborator with Ragnar. And he has a whole troupe of collaborators who appear in his work in various ways. They perform with him, they take roles in his video works, for instance, and that is most visible in what's widely seen as his masterpiece, which is the work called The Visitors from 2012. It was shot at Rokeby Farm in upstate New York and it's a nine screen video installation and on each of the screens you see a figure in a different room each playing an instrument and not only that they're all playing together they're playing this gentle country ballad which swells into great crescendos which is written by Ragnar and David Thor Jonsson one of his other regular collaborators and with lyrics written by Ragnar's ex-wife Austis Sif Gunnarsdottir about their breakup 
It's a mesmerising work, and once seen, it's never forgotten. It's almost impossible to tear oneself away from it. And typically for Ragnar, and this is what makes him such a great subject for this podcast, it teems with references. So on the one hand, it engages with the grand manor tradition of portraiture, except these are on video. Then at the end of the film, as all the musicians pour out of this country mansion into the landscape, it clearly evokes the Hudson River School of Painters in 19th century America. But it also has a more everyday pop cultural reference in that the visitors, the title, comes from the album by the Swedish band ABBA and that documents the falling apart of the two romantic relationships in the band. So there's this sort of circularity with the breakup of Ragnar's relationship and this reference to ABBA. So again, there's this very pronounced balance between the authentic and the playful, the serious and the mischievous. And so before I asked Ragnar about his specific musical, literary, cinematic and artistic references, I asked him about this duality in his work. I uh, kind of deeply believe in both because it's like, there are these two sentences which are some kind of a yin and yang in my brain about artistic creation. It's a sentence from uh, from, from the Icelandic writer Halldór Laxness, who wrote, like, nothing is of beauty unless it's serious. And then, like, I love this Montesquieu quote that says, uh, seriousness is the shield of stupidity. <laughs> it's like so rococo. <laughs> Yeah, so 18th century. I really love that. That's great. So I think it's a question of, you know, I think for me and a lot of other artists, it's a question of balance, you know, in composition of these these elements. Because also like there is nothing, and also my grandmother says, rest in peace. She always said that there's nothing more boring than a joke. Right. Which I think, which is, you know, a pretty bold statement, but <laughs> there's something to it. It's like, you know, you work with humor and art, but but you really got to carve it away because like, yeah, but but then again, I deeply believe in jokes. I, I, you know, I deeply believe in artists like Will Ferrell, you know, so. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think in a way you can see some of those kind of tensions, if you like, in the work being played out in the references probably will come to later on in terms of talking about your influences and things but it's that way that you mix really high culture with lower culture so you end up you know so for instance there's that piece um which is called the end rocky mountains where you have clear references to the history of the sublime and Caspar David Friedrich and, and, and all that but then also there's a reference to super tramp in there. yeah <laughs> and it seems to me that a lot of that kind of tension exists in the in the way that you use references in the world yeah absolutely because i think you know like like my work and my thoughts are just like references it's like you know when i listen to a song i just start deconstructing it you know where the uh, where the references within that it's like i'm listening to a cardi b song and i'm just like tick, 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 tick. i'm deconstructing that cardi b song like what are the references you know what what is he not saying which he is saying and uh where does that beat come from all that stuff i think that's so fascinating about culture and uh, I just love that stuff and I I really I really use uh, kind of all kinds of cultural elements in my work to create something I you know it's just like my work always kind of for me has this urgency it just has to happen 
this ridiculous thing just has to happen. <laughs> Let's talk about um, the, the way that you use your own life within your work, because I think this is a sort of, again, a sort of crucial balance between artifice and real life in your work, in the sense that, for instance, in that very early piece that you've repeated ever since where your mother spits at you, yeah, you know, that is your mother, but she's an actor and therefore she's playing a role. And, and in some of those more than others, she's very overtly acting yeah for instance so so it, it seems to me that the, even the way that you incorporate elements of your own life in your work has aspects of dressing it up at, of 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 making it a kind of theatrical view of your own life yeah i mean also i think it comes from you know being raised in the theater where there is like there is so much theatrical attitude in uh, in just like the real life of my family so that, you know, that it's hard to make the distinction between the theater and the real life. And therefore, I remember, like, you know, being in art school, you know, having all this talk about authenticity and, you know, and it was very much kind of like the Reykjavik art school was very uh, brilliant art school, but very conceptually minded. It's like very, you know, like Iceland is basically, there was Dieter Roth was here and we we're all just like, we're all in this kind of big detail road echo still. <laughs> so there's a very kind of hardcore ideas about authenticity and the truth in art and uh, to never be pretentious. And I just, I remember it was just like, it, you know, I love this stuff, but it just got on my nerves. It was always just like an insult to my family. <laughs> it's like, I was just like, pretentiousness is also totally authentic. You know, you can't say my mother is less of a person than Dieter Roth, you know, <laughs> as a person person. But I mean, maybe less an artist. But <laughs> but, you know, this like this idea that the uh, that the authentic is so important in art. It was overwhelming. And I think I I started doing my work this sort of with this tension in mind, like kind of my own life living in the, in the make believe of the theater. And uh, but then this kind of graceful idea of the truth in in conceptual visual art i'm interested in when that became crystal clear to you that you were not going to be in the theater yourself so the natural thing because you'd lived around your actor parents you'd spent you'd grown up in the theater as it were was that you in natural thing would be just to become part of that world yourself so when did you make the decision or when did you just drift into visual art as opposed to theater i you know was in a theater company that my friend started like when he was 11 <laughs> he's a little older than me like i was in a theater company with only kids since i was a kid so there was that was a really badass theater company there were no grown-ups and we just went and got the grants and got <laughs> and rented the theater ourselves and everything it was like pretty cool and uh and that guy is now the head of the national theater in iceland <laughs> magnus <Geir. laughs> It was a really, there was this kind of, kind of uh, wunderkind, you know, he just wanted to make theater. So I was in that theater group and in all kinds of theater groups in school. And um, I really wanted to be in the theater and wanted to be an actor. But, but there was always this uh, problem with talent. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that, <laughs> I kind of couldn't act. I can't act. I mean, I use a lot 
theatricality in my works, but like I never ever act. I'm a very bad actor. So I, I, I sort of went to art school, you know, in search of something, I think, because it was kind of, it has this allure, like visual art has this allure of ultimate freedom and that you could like, you know, like I realized like, oh, I'm not that good an actor and I don't have that great ideas, you know, in, you know, as a, as a director or something. So like, I was like, I will go to art school and because you can always just be an artist, you know, you don't need other people. I think that was very important for me too, because like growing up in theater, you get to know this uh, desperation that comes with, you know, like you need other people's validation all the time to do your work, that to, uh, to, to get a role or, or get, a, get a job as a director, or you need so much approval. But as a visual artist, you can just, you know, do it and everybody hates it, but uh, you can continue doing it. <laughs> That's the, that's the freedom of it. I love that. Right, let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. First one is, who was the first artist whose work you really loved? I think... Like it's always told in my family that the first uh, kind of art show I saw as a small, small kid and just something changed in me was uh, I saw Torvaldsen, Bertel Torvaldsen, of this neoclassical works of Bertel Torvaldsen, who was half Danish, half Icelandic. So there was like an overview of his show here in Iceland, which was a pretty big deal. I th- I just became obsessed by this, I'm told, as a kid. And, and, and told my mother something like, I really love all these ladies with curls and dicks. <laughs> Which was a pretty good description of Torvaldsen's kind of androgynous figures. <laughs> and, ha- and have you continued to look at his work? Yeah, I, I, I totally still love Torvaldsen. I mean, it's so strange. It's so dead. He's around the same time as Canova. And Canova is all just like so ridiculously sexy, and like, and uh, Torvaldsen is just dead. It's just formalistic. It's just, it's very it's very cool actually. I, there's something deeply conceptual about Torvaldsen, and and also this this idea of like you know building his museum in Copenhagen as a as a sort of mausoleum around himself, and yeah yeah it's sort of this kind of ridiculous pompousness. Of the artist gone full blown, but then I also been. I was actually now this winter reading Torvaldsen's uh, biography or like a description of him by his waiter or like his footman, and comes to show that Torvaldsen was a really nice guy. He wasn't pompous at all. He was just like living in the 19th century. That's what you had to do as an artist. You had to be pompous, you know. <laughs> it's you know you know if you're like Cardi B you have to twerk you know it's just like you gotta do what you gotta do <laughs> um, let's talk about more historical painters and artists uh, who who now do you turn to the most in terms of historical artists I really really like artists like John Singer Sargent with this kind of Dah. it's just like 19th century Dah. <laughs> there's no pain in there you know but there is pain you know you feel it but it's sort of subtle it's like you know it's kind of you understand why Van Gogh and Edward Munch you know went crazy it's so elegant it's sort of like 
It's almost like 10cc. You understand why Sex Pistols came along. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it is elegant, you know. 10cc and, and John Singer Sergeant are elegant. But, but then, yeah, so John Singer Sergeant is like, I, you know, I just like often go to, to this book I have of his works and just like, it's like a, a good place to go to. I don't have a book, but I very often look at Rosalba Carrera's work. This Venetian, uh, she was a Venetian uh, pastel uh, painter in the 18th century. And it's just so ridiculously gorgeous. I, I saw it in Venice, like at the Academy, there are a few works. And I kind of often just like Google Rosalba Carrera just to, to calm myself down. There's, a, there's one painting of her, which is, a, which is of a girl and a monkey. It's like, it's as rococo as you can get. It's just... Uh, ridiculously gorgeous and light, but there is so much humanity in it. What was your attraction to the Rococo? I mean, it's a recurrent theme in your work, but it was something that you responded to quite young, right? Even as, as a child. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's just as simple as that, that I was seven when Amadeus came out. <laughs> it's just, you know... This is the film about Mozart. Yeah, talking about, you know, pop culture. That was just in the cinemas and because it was such a cultural movie, my parents would always allow me to go again and again and again. I was like, can I go again and see Amadeus? So I went seven times to see it in the cinema. <laughs> so I think, I think that is the kind of reason why in that period just like really stuck, got stuck in my heart. It's just also this fast fascination for this kind of total different identity, I think. You know, like as a Young boy, I just love this idea that you could, you know, have a wig and be in, in kind of stockings. I just like, I love the ideas of these clothes. And I, I remember having such a longing to be in Rococo clothes. <laughs> and and uh, like, it was a serious longing, just like daydreaming about that. There was, like, I remember when I was in art school, it was like, just I just remember being in kind of Rococo class. I remember like feeling a really sensual sensation. And then I just confessed to my friends afterwards, it's like, I was really horny in Rococo class. <laughs> and of course, I got made big time fun of <laughs> in art school after that. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm interested in the way that you've used that. I mean, obviously, there are the more obvious works like Bliss, where you literally took an aria from Mozart and repeated it for 12 hours. But also it's affected your work in other ways. Like, for instance, there's, there's a Watteau reference in your work, Scenes from Western Culture. You wanted to create sort of contemporary vignettes that were like scenes from his paintings, I remember you saying. Yeah. So it's interesting in the ways that, you know, you're interested in, in a way, not just in that sort of that extravagant language of clothing and things like that. You're interested in the form of Rococo as well as its, its excesses, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, like, yeah, like I'm realizing like I've become like, interested in the attitude of Rococo rather than, you know, so the, uh, like, like an artist like Watteau is such a, such a brilliant example of his paintings are just melancholia in such a subtle way. They, like the morals are ambiguous. It's like, it's so ambiguous. I love that about Watteau. And, uh, there's just kind of unexplainable longing in them. It's totally the opposite to an Edward Munch painting. <laughs> Which is just like, this is what you should feel. <laughs> like you, you, you see a photo and you're just, I have no idea what I'm feeling, but it's something. That's fascinating. Yeah. 
And I love that about him. And also I just love it about the, there's this attitude in the Rococo period, which is so interesting that it's really the, the start of the modern, you know, how modern human beings think. I mean, we have the, we have the, the age of enlightenment and, you know, you know, Voltaire and Rousseau and, and then like Mary Wollstonecraft writes her book about the rights of women. And just also, also just like how she, as an example, just like kind of kickstarts feminism in like the, the, the idea that she writes this book and then her daughter invents uh, science fiction. It's just like one empowered woman just has a daughter and she invents science fiction. It's just such, such a fascinating period. That like the little stories that happen that become uh, uh, like guidelines to, to the future. And just this, you know, and the idea of, you know, of the French Revolution and, and the idea of America and democracy. And it's, I find it so fascinating about the Rococo period also is this uh, thing that you have enlightenment and humanism, but then you have like opera and pink satin at the same time. It's the height of this really kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really yin and yang period. <laughs> Um, what about living artists? Which living artists do you most admire? I really admire Elizabeth Payton a lot. I think that that's the, this Rococo sensibility comes back into there. <laughs> I think, I mean, I just remember in art school, just uh, seeing those paintings in some, you know, in some, you know, one of those like art now books. <laughs> that <laughs> and, you know, like, like looking through it and then these paintings just, whoa! You can actually do this. Are you allowed to do this? this? No, you're not allowed to do this. This is so badass. It's just like a lovely painting of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> there's something so profound in her work. And it's like, it's also interesting how it has aged that, you know, these kind of 90s pop stars she was painting. I mean, we've forgotten about the music, but these paintings are there. It's just like, whoa. <laughs> They become like Caravaggio's drunks or something, these, these pop stars. And, and you realize like, wow, this culture is actually going to live in those paintings, maybe more in the, than in the, uh, in, the, in, in the actual movies and, and rock songs. And she, I suppose there's that sweetness of melancholy, which is, which is hugely part of your work as well, isn't it? You know, this idea that in Elizabeth Payton's images, you know, death is almost built into these beautiful paintings, if you like. Absolutely. It's really like, yeah, you're always sort of, you're like looking at these lovely paintings, but you're looking at your mortality and, and the subject's mortality and the painter's mortality. And, and there's even like, you know, there's even more tension. Like when you look at Watteau, like he's gone, like, but she's alive and this is our times, but you feel it's slipping away when you're looking at those paintings. You know, often when I see her works in collections, you know, you see like, you know, all these kind of badass installation works and like, you know, and also like for me, you know, from the art school I come from, they all look like really good art school works. It's like, yeah, you're really doing proper artworks. Like you should do artworks nowadays. <laughs> and, and then when you see Elizabeth Payton, like you shouldn't, she shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> Why is she doing this? It's so, it's so weirdly bold in the modern era to be doing these paintings of her. I just totally, yeah, I could, I could go on and on. <laughs> 
This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. So you've heard Ragnar talk about his love of the Rococo, and there are abundant examples of great Rococo paintings in the Frick collection. So if you download the Bloomberg Connects app and click on the guide to the Frick, you can hear curators explore major works by Rococo artists like Fragonard and Boucher in depth, while zooming in on the details that they describe in the paintings. I loved hearing about Boucher's lady on her daybed and finding out why it's sometimes known as his untidy Venus and how in doing that painting he riffed on the great paintings of Venus by Titian and Giorgione. From the app you can also link to the Frick's video series Cocktails with a Curator. So for instance you can join Xavier Salomon, the Frick's chief curator, with a 50-50 which is a mix of dry and sweet sherry and hear him talk about Velázquez's magnificent Fraga Philip which is one of the greatest of all the Spaniards' royal portraits. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. Um, what about museums? Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Okay, the problem is like I live in Iceland, so <laughs> so mostly I mostly go to this bar called Hotel Holt, where there's where's the which is the only place where you can look at like mid twentieth century uh, Icelandic art. But I think my favorite place, I think my favorite museum, like favorite art place, is uh, the New Museum in New York. You know, as a, as someone who lives on an island, when I come to New York and just want to see what's going on, I can go to the New Museum. It's like a radio station with the cool new songs you can tune into. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so which cultural experience changed the way that you see the world? I think the cultural experience that changed the way I see the world most is uh, is reading uh, the picture of Dorian Gray when I was 15. I think it had a huge effect on me in, in also like going into visual art and just this lure of of the arts in it. Like the the first part when when they are you know working on the portrait in this lovely studio I'm just like ah I just I want to be there I want to live in this world. And I think I think I was too young to read this book at 15. I think it turned me into a, you know, I became a bit narcissistic, megalomaniac. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dangerous book to read at a tender age. But that book totally uh, changed the way I, I see the world. Then, of course, it changed with me. Like, then, because when I was 15, I, I just thought Dorian Gray was so glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> but now I realize it's a it's a cautionary tale about 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 ruin and and uh, and the dangers of ego and uh, and uh, kind of longing for beauty and these things that could totally tear our lives and and the lives of others apart. But that that book had a huge effect on me. Now, it's great that you turn the subject onto literature because the next question is which books or authors you return to the most. Of the books I return to the most, it's Halter Laxness, the uh, this, this Icelandic author, and his book called World Light. I think that's the book I return to the most. It's like I know phrases from it by heart, and you know, like in our, my family, it's 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 a book we read on uh, when people are dying. You read this book on the deathbed. It's that kind of book. Whoa! <laughs> but that's also about that's also a book about the longing for beauty and and. That ends up in destruction and suicide, but it's. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's a it's an amazing book. 
and and Halter Lachnes is is such a big author for me. I mean, he was still alive when I was a kid, and he was just this kind of he just was the culture here. I mean, you can imagine it's like a small, tiny place, and uh, kind of nothing was happening here. But this guy lived in the suburbs and had a Jaguar, and he won the Nobel Prize in 1954. <laughs> so you're like, here comes the guy who won the Nobel Prize into town. It was just, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and also his attitude, I think, became really important for me because he has this, he writes the most beautiful lines. You are like, it's just ridiculously beautiful, his books, but they're also all written tongue-in-cheek. So it's very it's very hard to pinpoint him. Is it you know is it ironic or is it honest? Like I don't know, and I think he didn't know himself. It's just his character was very very complex. Can you give us a synopsis of World Light? You know, you made a work called World Light, which is an attempt to yeah sort of respond directly to it. But tell us tell us about World Light because there'll be there'll be a lot of people listening to this who won't be familiar with it. So World Light is a novel by Halter Laxness, which was. Uh, published from 1937 to 1940 in four parts. And it tells of uh, Oliver Kaurason, who is an orphan. Who, it's like kind of the welfare system here in Iceland was like, if you were an orphan, you were just put into some farm and just like treated as shit, <laughs> basically. And <laughs> he's just like in this, being treated terribly in this farm. And then, then sees a book with some kind of rhyme poetry by Sigurd Breifjörd, which is pretty... You know, it's not considered, it's really kind of old Icelandic pop culture. It's not considered that important, Sigurd Breifjörd. So he reads Sigurd Breifjörd and he sees like divinity in poetry and divinity in art. And kind of the book is based on diaries of this guy called Magnus Magnusson, who was just a poor teacher and and a wannabe poet in, in the early, early 20th century. And... Uh, he used his diaries to to create this protagonist, and it's really an interesting project of like through art, like the 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 main character, you know, can conquer pain and conquer like the ultimate sadness and the humiliation of life, and he becomes a poet, and and it's really interesting. Like in the book, you don't really know if he's a mediocre poet or a great poet. I mean, his poetry is pretty good, but it's not that good. He's, you know, he's, it's sort of a book about the mediocre artist longing for beauty. And then you just follow him through his life and he just has, you know, sad, horrible relationships and his children die and he becomes uh, kind of, a, he becomes a teacher and then becomes a, you know, when he's a teacher, he becomes a pervert and a pedophile and is put into prison. And then he uh, commits suicide with walking into the glacier. <laughs> So it's a cheery book then. <laughs> it's so depressing, <laughs> but it's so gorgeous. It's like so gorgeously written and uh, beautiful and and hilarious at the same time. It it has these lines like where the glacier meets the sky, that's where beauty alone reigns. There are no sorrows there, therefore joy is not necessary. It's that kind of stuff, you know. Fantastic. And it's interesting. I think it's really because like Halter Laxness. You know, it's like you talk often with the reference to uh, to the Icelandic sagas with Halter Laxness, but I think a big influence in this book is just like uh, the kind of Chinese literature, like like Lao Tse. It's really like kind of Lao Tse meets Icelandic sagas. 
meets modernism. <laughs> there's other works of yours which have very explicit references to literature. So, for instance, there's a recent work that you did uh, called Todd Einer Dharma, which references Eugene Onegin. So, can you say something about that work and 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 how and how significant a role that in a way does the book play in in the way that you formulate the piece yeah i mean taught eine dame like the death of a lady it's just a it's a performance where there is a where there's an elegant lady sort of in an opera dress kind of dying in the snow and she has a kind of shot wound in her dress and there is constant uh, snow on her the idea was somewhat to create a performance with a performer that was just like kind of immediate opera it was just like I had this operatic, like, ah, make a sense. <laughs> and uh, the idea for the piece came actually from Egeni Onegin. So there's a scene when uh, Onegin and, and Lensky have had their duel with pistols and Lensky is shot and Lensky is just kind of bleeding out in the snow. And there's this like description of Pushkin's description of blood and snow it's uh, so uh, so painterly and and gorgeous that I was I was reading that book at the time when I when I could just got this idea for this piece and and you know I didn't want it to be like a Lensky in the snow and then therefore came this also this idea with that it's a it's kind of a lady in a, in a fur coming from the opera. It's a work that comes from Pushkin but has nothing to do with Pushkin except the idea of snow, blood, and death. Yeah. Except just that. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then there's that work called song where um it which is inspired by a poem called song and, and particularly about your memories your sort of misrememberings of the, of of a poem called song by Allen Ginsberg right yeah but it also includes books there's books that are part of that installation so there's these three women who were who were your nieces in the first performance of yeah. it who who have these books around them by feminist artists, but also by Flaubert, right? Yeah. So you have, it's it's a culture of literature in that piece. It was that you were exploring. It right? was a, it's a really, I, you know, it's a really strange piece. I'm, you know, they are uh, they are singing this song which I wrote from like a mis misremembered poem by Allen Ginsberg called "Song." It's like no rest without sleep, no sleep without dreams of love, drums, drums. The weight of the world, the weight of the world is love. And it was a little kind of ditty I wrote out of this misremembered Allen Ginsberg thing. And then uh, I asked my nieces to perform it in a, in this uh, uh, in the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, which has this like marble hall, which is sort of, I think it's a replica of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of America, 19th century, like we're doing Greece here. <laughs> and they are sort of on a on a kind of in a pedestal these kind of like the three graces these lovely young women and they're just like stroking each other hair and combing it with with japanese fine combs and uh and uh, singing this song and then they're just surrounded by uh by books of by female authors on uh, very much on feminine identity and you know, like you know, like Sylvia Plath and you know, classical stuff like that. But then there's also then I had to throw in uh, one one Madame Bovary just to, <laughs> and it was also like I kind of I mean then they were doing this uh, performance for a month. It was just good for them to be surrounded with books. It was like it was education for my nieces. 
So the, you encourage them to sit, to, well, as well as performing this song, they sit and read the book. Yeah, right? I mean, it was sort of a, it was also, also just like a sort of an anchor for them. Like when the boredom really gets you, you can, you can just look at a sentence in those books and it's just boom, you know. Yeah, that was very much based on literature and also this like idea of classicism and, you know, classical beauty and, and kind of the toxicness of it. You know, it's like, it's such a beautiful piece. There is like this blonde young girl singing this song about love. But you realize that like, oh, this is like a, you know, like couples would have liked this piece. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I find that also so interesting. Like the evil in beauty is like, you deal with cliches of beauty and they are just evil. And they are, you know, yeah, I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we've already talked about music a fair amount, but we ask everybody, what music or other audio do you listen to while you're in the studio? I listen to a lot. I mean, now I'm, I've been mostly listening to the, to the new Sufjan Stevens record. It's, it's called The Ascension. It's sort of an electro record from him. It's pretty, pretty great. I think few artworks have, have kind of coined the, uh, the state of mind America is in now and the American empire. I mean, we're like, I'm in Iceland, but like I was a part of the American empire that's falling apart. <laughs> and this is the song which is which has this uh, line repeated in it: uh, "Don't do to me what you did to America." It's just so strong. It's I think it's like I it's kind of my favorite artwork about the current situation I've, I've stumbled upon. I want to talk. Obviously, music has been utterly essential and completely central to your work. Um. But is it is it from listening, literally from listening just in your studio or at home that some of these pieces occur to you? I know that's the case certainly with Sorrow by by The National, which of course led to a lot of sorrow. It was it was a song that just obsessed you and that you were listening to and then prompted a whole piece. Yeah. I mean all these all these songs that I have worked with in in kind of in uh, artistic terms, it just always comes from the song. Like these pieces are usually end up with being a portrait of of music that I have been listening to a lot and has, you know, maybe sparked something in the imagination. It's almost just like, uh, I'm a child of the 90s. I just want to make music videos. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating because it is, I mean, there's obviously the, the pop references there's lots of those but for instance there's a piece called the sky in a room which i know you first did for artist mundi in in wales and is now on show in italy can you say something about that work because i think that's an intriguing again you've you've transposed if you like a work from an italian sort of pop song into a sort of grander classical form can you say something about why you wanted to do that i mean like i heard a record with that italian pop song in a version which was put out in 1970 on a, on a Gino Paoli record called Rileggendo Vecchie Lettere d'Amore. And I, I knew the song from before. It's a very famous uh, version with, with Mina, which is kind of like, has this like, Quando se come? It's like, has this kind of beautiful beat drive in it. 
It's sort of Phil Spectorish, isn't it? It's sort of yeah, yeah, yeah very Phil really Spectorish. Yeah. But then you know, Paulie made a version with like this totally unknown version, but I just stumbled upon it on this record, where he just sings it alone with an organ, and the uh, arrangement of the organ is very kind of it's very Bach. So this kind of a Bachish arrangement. And when I was uh, doing the, a performance in Venice, where I was like with my friend and just painting him every day and we we're smoking and drinking beer for half a year. Uh, we had this record and we listened to it so much. And uh, we became so fascinated by it because it had this, like the only song I had stumbled up and my friend Palle had stumbled upon, which, which had this basic idea of visual art in it. It's like the sky in a room. It's like, it's about transformation of space. So when you are here with me, there are no walls, just endless woods. So, so that love like transforms everything or just like this idea of love. And then, you know, like Italian friends would tell us about this song and the, and the story that it was, you know, that Gino Paoli got the idea for this song in a, in a brothel in Genoa. I was like, wow, it's just, and then you understand that in the song, he says like this purple ceiling becomes an endless sky. You know, like it's like kind of the purple ceiling of like a late 50s brothel. It's like, it's like, you know, these few minutes that like this person was actually experiencing true love and just like everything is transformed. And it's just such a powerful song. And they're like, and sort of realized that it is basically, it's basically a kind of, it's like James Turrell before James Turrell. It's like, it's about... It's about putting the sky in a room. It's really kind of, it's very sculptural and very artistic. I thought this song, like it's the only pop song I know that has this basic idea of, of visual art in it. I mean, there are many songs with reference to visual art. I mean, uh, kind of my favorite, other favorite references is, is Elton John's Your Song. This line, if I was a sculptor, but then again, no. I really like that line. <laughs> There's a drawing you made of it, isn't there? I've seen a drawing where you did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> but then again, no. <laughs> I think that's sort of what I am. <laughs> and, uh, Your artistic manifesto. It's my artistic manifesto. But but then I but then there came this idea to to do it in in Wales and just to like just perform it in this. There's this beautiful organ there in the National Museum in Wales, and we did it there, and it became. Yeah, something that uh, I was really happy with. And, and then Massimiliano Gianni contacted me this summer just to ask if it could be done in Milan. And in that in that gorgeous church there, that it's almost like a diamond shrine around the song. How wonderful. So I'm very happy with it. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask you about The Visitors, which obviously is not using a sort of cultural reference because it's a song you co-wrote um, but it's obviously become, I mean, it, last year it won the best artwork of the 21st century so far yes. in The Guardian, for instance. Yes, you can imagine. I, it was like a week before my grandmother died, I could go with the, the article and show it to my grandmother. And she was like, well, not all silliness is the same. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it is interesting because The Visitors has become... You know, it's, it's like your songs in the key of life or your Sergeant Pepper or something. And I just wondered, if, you know, a lot of artists are not historians of their own work. Yeah. But I wonder when you see that piece, it's, it, it's been staged so in so many places across the world. 
But when you see it, do you understand why there's been so much attention to it and so many people love it so much? I, I sort of, I get it. Uh, there's something mysterious that happened in it that was not planned. I mean, it was, I was really worried when I was making it that it would become too, way too cheesy. It's just like me and my friends in a fancy house doing, you know, not that great uh, country song. <laughs> but so... <laughs> Some magic happened, and I remember just like seeing it, and it's like, all oh, right, it's like, holy moly, this is uh, something. Yeah, it's just like some some kind of crazy emotion, emotionality in it, which you, I don't think you can try to achieve. You know, it's like it, it just happens if it happens. And on then like the kind of the fantastic uh, success of the work, I had to make some dark shit after it. It was just so I was, I was. <laughs> I was in big danger of becoming the feel-good artist, Ragnar Kjartansson. <laughs> so, so you, you made world light after yeah. it, right? I mean, that's one of the words that you made yeah, after and, it, which, which, and you described to us earlier on just how dark that totally. That, that book that's is. why, like, it's kind of the same group of friends. We just plunged into world light, which is just you know, I mean, it's like then the piece is absolute cacophony, and it's basically a, a basically look at it as a cubist painting of a of a novel. It's like totally opposite. It's, it's, there's no harmony. There is just like, there is just despair, loneliness, and something constantly unfulfilled in it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So let's talk about, I wanted to talk to you about that group of friends because one of the things that it's clear from seeing your work over the years is that is that these friends are sort of comets that come in and out of your work you know so your work with David Paul Jonsson on one work Valtis Dottir's sisters appear regularly for instance and I'm just interested in in that sort of dynamic between you and your mates it's 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 such a sort of a, um a compelling theme in your work and I just wonder how sort of planned it is that you sort of were to be collaborative right from the start did you know you know you they're, they're obviously friend, you know just friends as well as collaborators so was it always the intention that that you had to involve each other in each other's work yeah I, yeah I sort of like I just remember like you know getting to know Christina now like many many like 20 years ago we were together at the party and we became friends and I was just like I want to do something with this lady one day you know you just get that feeling I very, I very often kind of fall collaboratively in love with people. But like, I want it's. I think it's similar like being a jazz musician. You just like, hey, I want to jam with this guy, you know. <laughs> and sort of then people come in and out into these uh, works almost just like uh, like kind of musicians into sessions. Because I got to know it just like from being a teenager and starting a band that like there is kind of no more beautiful way to uh, foster friendship than uh, kind of artistic collaboration and i think most of most of my artistic collaboration just comes from uh, from this kind of longing to to do something with your friends and people you admire yeah you know returning to the theater it is also something like a sort of company isn't it you know a, a, you know there is a, there is a there are echoes of a theatrical company about it yeah they're, they're, it's true it is a bit of a company i mean then it's a group of friends like some are living here some are living abroad and then we help each other out maybe one of somebody is like our friend kjartan who has collaborated with me in a lot of works a composer him and his wife maria are you know building a farm and suddenly we are all there just like digging shit <laughs> really old uh, sheep shit <laughs> from a to to for for him to create a studio one day you know so it's 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 not only artistic collaboration but it's just like all kinds of collaboration 
Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as a kind of essential ritual? I don't have any essential ritual. I'm always just trying to achieve ritual. Because uh, my, my thought, my inner life is just such a mess. You know, that like, it weirdly calms me down to have a painting of, a, of Ivan the Terrible killing his son. It's like, okay, this, is, this calms me down. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm trying to have a ritual, but it's just always this longing for ritual and longing to create. I just love the idea of going to the studio and working on my pieces from from morning to the afternoon and then have a glass of red wine with my friends and uh, you know like and that's so cool i want that but it's just a mess <laughs> <laughs> now um we're talking on zoom and i can see uh, the background in your studio but it looks like you're sitting in a museum so can you tell me why that is yeah it's a it's a set from a piece i'm working on i filmed it earlier but i just couldn't take it down it's so nice and then came the pandemic and you were like, whoa, I have a really badass Zoom background. <laughs> but also, I, I just like to, to use it. I mean, I have my, you see, I have my painting equipment here also. So it's a, it's a replica of the Tretikov in Moscow, how that was in 1913, when uh, this guy called Balashov stormed into the galleries and went to this painting by Ilya Repin of uh, Ivan the Terrible and his son. It's a painting depicting Ivan the Terrible uh, the moment after he has like killed his son and his son is bleeding and, and dying in his arms and like there's utter despair in the eyes of Ivan the Terrible. Actually, when my parents went to Moscow in the 80s, talking about like art experiences, like the, they came home and my mother, I never saw this painting, but I think it was one of those art experiences you never forget. Like my mother came and like we saw a painting in Moscow that is so painful and so sad and so brilliant and horrible and that somebody tried to kill it in 1913. A man just went mad and just attacked it with a knife. And I, I she didn't have a picture of it, but I just, then described it and I just like you can imagine how that stayed in the mind as this kind of ultimate artwork that was just attacked and uh, then she said like now it's behind glass and it's safe it's okay you don't have to worry honey and then uh, I started working on this show I'm doing for the VAC in Moscow I started working on it in like late uh, 2017 like I was like, ah, then I look forward. One thing I look forward about going to Moscow is like I look forward to uh, to go to Tretyakov and see the Ivan the Terrible and the Sun. It's like one of the most influential paintings I know. Uh, but then, like in the spring of 2018, suddenly there was this news that a guy, a guy had attacked it again, now with an iron pole and breaking the glass and and hitting the painting. So there I had this like suddenly like, whoa, these two events of attack on these paintings and both both were done for some weird semi-religious nationalistic reasons and and in my mind it was sort of like aha we have like kind of we have a rony hornian symmetrical tension here <laughs> <laughs> it's like so i decided to make a sort of a rony horn piece where it's, it's just constantly looping it's a short piece it's almost like a, a gif so we just created like 
the museum in my studio, how it was in 1913, and then how it was in 2018, and uh, replayed the attacks. I got these uh, great Russian actors called uh, Alexei Rosin, who played in one of my favorite movies, Loveless. Like this Alexei Rosin plays the father in it, and such an amazing actor. And he came to play uh, Balashov in the 1913 uh, attack. And then uh, this actor called Alexander Pal, who's a great actor and kind of a Russian heartthrob actor. But, you know, like he is, you know, he's not your regular heartthrob. He's a he's a badass hardcore actor. <laughs> so it was fantastic. And then to, to work with these two actors as the uh, as the uh, attackers on the painting. So that's that's a piece I'm working on now, just like editing it. And, and then there was so much fun, such cool thing. Then there's like in the attack in 2018... There is a, there was a like an old lady working in the museum that stopped the attacker, and uh, and I was like, okay, I have to cast a you know a Russian actress, an elderly Russian actress for it, but then I just remembered my neighbor and like kind of somebody I'd known since childhood, an actress, Gudrun Gisladotir, that she played in uh, in Tarkovsky's last film, The Sacrifice, she played the witch in The Sacrifice. Like a really, really brilliant role. And and I was like, of course, we have like... And she now kind of tours the world as one of the kind of only surviving kind of big lead role in a Tarkovsky movie. <laughs> she she played the, the babushka that uh, stops him. So it was, that was pretty awesome. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I think it would be this painting I was talking about by Rosalba Carrera of a girl and a monkey. I would just like really like to live in a space which had nothing. <laughs> I would just eat noodle soup on the floor and have a girl with a monkey on the wall. I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the very last question, what's art for? I think art is a shelter from the storm. I was just discussing this. I was drinking whiskey with my friend, who is a filmmaker, last night, and he was explaining to me that Bob Dylan's uh, Shelter from the Storm is not about Sarah, it's about the art goddess. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's kind of on top of my mind. Okay, yeah, it's a shelter from the storm. And I love it about our times. We're seeing how important art is. Like the, the the times I grew up are gone. Like when art was just cocktail parties and you know, good time. <laughs> <laughs> like like I think I think also like cancel culture has just shown us how important art is. Art is a difficult idea that we are you know constantly dealing with, and and I love like you know that to attack political uh, injustice, you start with attacking art. Of course, because art is the most important thing in our culture. So I like I totally go like meh when people say like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't attack art. I mean, of course, art is so important. Ragnar, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ben. <laughs> Thank you.
Ragnar Kjartansson's created his first set of prints, two new portfolios called Repent and Fire. You can see those at luringaugustine.com or i8.is. So that's the letter I, the number 8.is. The Visitors is on view at ICA Boston until the 15th of August 2021, and Ragnar's video Death is Elsewhere is on view and ongoing at the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, Canada. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With and our other podcasts, The Week in Art, wherever you're listening. And do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mahowska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalar. Huge thanks to Ragnar Kjartansson and to Lilia Gunnarsdottir in Ragnar's studio. Join us on Friday for The Week in Art and Wednesday for the next episode of this podcast, A Brush With, the American painter Christina Qualls. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.